All right, you may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, please turn them with me to the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth. And uh, if you need a Bible or if you need a bulletin that has the notes and the kids' notes in there, just slip up your hand and, and Mark is, is ready. Look at that. He's got a stack right there, just ready to go, ready to leap into action. Book of Ruth. It's a little book. It's only four chapters, but it's not hard to find. It's going to be after the Pentateuch, which is the five books written by Moses. That's uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then after Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, you'll find Judges, and then after Judges, you'll find Ruth. And we're going to look at chapter 1 this morning. Word of God says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were... Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband." Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let's pray. Father God, this is your word, and your word does not return void. I pray that as the word goes forth this morning and is preached, that it would impact our hearts, impact our minds, how we think, how we live. God, thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Deemer, and thank you, Mark, for leading us in a wonderful time of worship through song this morning. We are going to do a short four-week series in the book of Ruth. We have been doing Psalms, and I mentioned at the beginning of the summer that I wanted to do um, the book of Psalms, do several summer Psalms, and then another Old Testament book as we closed out the summer and headed into the fall where we'd rejoin uh, Acts. We left off in Acts. We'll be starting back up in Acts, Acts chapter 13. Um, but, um, but I wanted to go to Ruth, actually, to talk to Redeemer. We were talking about, thinking about what to, what, where to go, and, and we had discussed Ruth early on, and then I kind of felt like I wasn't going to do Ruth. But then just this week in particular, praying and considering uh, where we are as a church, where people in our church are right now, life circumstances, good circumstances and bad circumstances that people are facing, that I felt the book of Ruth would really speak to us uh, over these next few weeks. So we are going to be in the book of Ruth. It's um, considered, this, this little book in the Old Testament is considered by even secular observers just to be a, a literary masterpiece. The author of Ruth, um, and we don't know who that author is, does an amazing job of telling a story that's it's extremely captivating, yet at the same time, it's deeply and profoundly theological in its nature. It's a true story. It's a beautiful account of a historical event. Now, if you're new to the book of Ruth, you'll know, or if you're new to the book of Ruth, you may not know, but if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you'll know that the main characters in the book are, are Ruth, after whom the book is named, uh, Naomi, who you read about here in this first chapter, and then later we'll hear of a guy by the name of Boaz. And... Uh, of course, the, the main character of the book, of all the books in the Bible, is Yahweh, God. Uh, it's not a long book. It takes about 20 or 30 to mi- minutes to read, uh, just on your own, reading it. So I want to challenge you to read it every week as we go through the book of Ruth. If you, can you find 30 minutes to sit down and read the book of Ruth? Just read it straight through, like a story. So I want to challenge you to do that. I'm also going to be sending you guys a downloadable book, a PDF, um, just a PDF book of a tremendous little, um, uh, uh, I guess, exposition of this book that John Piper wrote called Bitter and Sweet Providence. And uh, you can buy the book, but I found out you can download it for free. So I'm going to be sending, I'm putting that link in the post, and I'm going to send it to you guys uh, because it'll be a tremendous, uh, just extra book to be reading along with the book of Ruth. If you have to pick, you don't have to time to read both, read the Bible, but it's a great thing to be filling yourself with as we study the book of Ruth. So um, it it breaks up nicely into four different acts, four different chapters uh, here in the book. Uh, It takes place in six different settings. Interesting thing about the book of Ruth, it's 58% dialogue. I think that's to be expected with a book that's named after a woman, right? It's 58% dialogue. I mean, if you get into some of the other books, like First, second Samuel, first Kings, you got the action going on. 
I mean, right now, like, I think the top two movies right now in the box office are, uh, what, The Expendables, and then there's this Julia Roberts movie called Eat, Drink, and Pray or something. I don't know, Love, Hate, and Pray. I don't know, some, some sort of romantic thingy. And then there's The Expendables. So you kind of have, so, so in the Bible, you have both. You know, you have The Expendables. You go to First Kings, there's action going on. There's conquest. And then you've got Ruth. You've got this wonderful beautiful book of Ruth with 58% dialogue. But it speaks to all of us, not just the women here today. This is a tremendous book that speaks um, really of biblical manhood and womanhood. We have a huge picture drawn in this book of what it means to be a woman of God, but also a man of God. Uh, The book of Ruth has several themes interwoven throughout the narrative. In one sense, as I mentioned, it's a love story. Uh, The love between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi's love for Ruth and her desire for Ruth to find a husband and to have a family. Um, We have, of course, the the love story between Ruth and Boaz that we'll get to. It blossoms as the story goes along. Uh, But the ultimate love story in the book is God's love for his people. And that's the ultimate love story of the book of Ruth. It's also a story about faithfulness and loving kindness. Uh, The Hebrew word hesed is used in this book referring to people. Ruth shows hesed, faithfulness, love uh, towards her mother-in-law. And Naomi shows it in turn to Ruth. And we see it being used, that word being used of Boaz as well. And there's this hesed faithfulness, loving kindness that all the characters demonstrate. But again, we ultimately see it in God. His faithfulness, his hesed, loving kindness towards his people. And it emerges as the book goes along. It's also a story about the importance of family, the importance of a lineage, and a godly heritage. It's a story about answered prayer and prayers that are answered in unexpected ways. As I mentioned, it's a story about biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. It's a story about ethnic diversity within the people of God. Ethnic diversity within the plans of God. Uh, It's ultimately a story about providence. God's providence. It's a story about the good, yet sometimes difficult, hand of God in our lives. Um, It's a story about David, a story about a king. Uh, This book ends by pointing us to King David, which ultimately points us to who? It points us to Jesus. It's all about the Messiah. This book is about the Messiah. This book is about Jesus. So it's about all those things. Um, And so this morning, I want to kind of give us an introduction into the book as we, as we come into it. And we're going to look at some of the different characters here in the book. But I want us to see ultimately this story points towards Jesus. The whole story points towards Jesus. We'll look at it for the next few weeks. And this book starts off in a dark place. There are dark clouds in the first frame of this story. This is a difficult time for Israel. And it's a difficult time for Naomi's family. Let's get the historical context first of all. It says in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. This is not a pretty time in history for Israel. The days when the judges ruled. If you remember the book of Judges or if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know the pattern. God's people strayed from him and then he would send judgment upon them because he had told them he would do that if they did stray from him. So they strayed from him. He sends judgment They cry out to him. He sends a judge or a deliverer. And they return to him. And then it happens again. 
And it's just this pattern over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And, and to be honest with you, the book of Judges is one of the most difficult and dark books in all the scriptures. There are some horrendous things that happen in the book of Judges. And you read in there, the book of Judges is an R-rated book. There's some really horrible things that happen. Even the heroes in the book of Judges have some pretty shady lifestyles. So that's the climate. That's the atmosphere of the culture of what's going on in this story. Judges, the theme of Judges is basically this. Judges 21, 25. This phrase is used more than once in the book. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's, that's what... The, what the world was like. That's what Israel was like in those days. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. Um, it sounds familiar to me because I think that's pretty much the culture we live in today. Don't judge me. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. You do what's right in your eyes. It spelled disaster for Israel. It spells disaster for any culture. Um, matter of fact, I was reading this week, and I'm not going to put names to this story, but these are two politicians. There was one politician who had wished death upon another politician. Isn't, isn't it wonderful politics? One politician wants this politician to die and says that publicly. And so then this politician gets reamed. You can't say that. That's horrible. Why did you say that about this other politician? So the politician says, okay, I'm going to apologize and releases an official apology. Now I want you to listen to the official apology of this politician. He said, I apologize to anyone who feels the, they need an apology from me. I apologize to anyone who feels they need an apology from me. And anyone who feels they need to be angry at me is free to be angry at me. I made some mistakes, but I'm not ashamed of who I am. I'm not ashamed of anything which I am. Nothing anyone says to me is going to change the way I feel about myself, especially if you don't know me. How's that for an apology? Not one ounce of saying, I was wrong. It is not right to wish death upon someone else. Not an ounce of that. It was just, you know, if you think you need an apology from me, then I'm sorry. And that's the culture we live in where everyone just does what's right in his own eyes. That's where that apology comes from. Well, I guess you were offended by it, so I'm sorry, but personally I wasn't offended by it. So I'm not as sorry for the act. I'm just sorry that you got offended. And that's the culture we live in today where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. This is the day and age that Ruth, Naomi, this family, this is, the, this is the day and age that they lived in. This is the time of the judges when Israel vacillated between times of peace and war, plenty and want, stability and social chaos. And it was all because they were vacillating between serving God or serving idols. The book of Ruth begins during this dark season of Israel's existence and most likely during a period of God's judgment. Because in verse 1 we read that there was famine in the land. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and in Leviticus chapter 26 that what one of the judgments God would bring upon his people if they strayed from him is that he would bring famine upon the land. So the author doesn't specifically say here that the famine is a result of judgment, but I think we know it is because it's in the period of the judges and there's famine and I think we can see the judging hand of God upon his people in this passage here. Another reason to believe that this is some sort of divine judgment is that they go to Moab and they have plenty in Moab. And Moab's only 50 miles away from Bethlehem. So Moab's only 50 miles away and they're not experiencing famine. And Bethlehem is experiencing famine. So there's an indication here that this is some sort of divine 
event that God has brought upon his people because of their sin. There's a lot of subtle irony throughout the book of Ruth. And here we have the first instance of it. It says there was famine in the land, and they were coming from Bethlehem. Now, if you know what Bethlehem means, it means house of bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so there's an irony here the author is drawing by saying there's famine in the house of bread. There's no more bread in the house of bread. And so they're having to leave. They're having to go somewhere else to find their bread. So this is indeed a dreadful, tragic, painful chapter in Israel's life. With that beginning here of the story, I want us to look at four characters from this chapter, okay? And look at how they handle this dark season, this dark and difficult time in their lives. And I left my clicker down here. So I'm going to look at these four different characters, and I want us to look at how they handled this dark period in their life. And the first one I want us to look at is Elimelech. So the first point there in your notes is Elimelech. And it, and it says Elimelech was running from it. He was running from this difficult and dark season that God was bringing upon Israel and even upon his own family. Um, when we begin to read the story here, you, you start off by thinking it's going to be about Elimelech. It says, And a man from Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Yet Elimelech is not the main character. He's not even one of the main characters of this book. Yet it starts out with him, and the first few verses deal with his decisions. Now Elimelech's name means God is king or God rules. That's what Elimelech's name means. But his actions don't portray a man who actually believes in what his name declares. When the dark clouds of God's judgment falls upon Israel, Elimelech takes his family and bolts instead of submitting to the will of God, submitting to the king. The Bible says he went to stay a while in Moab. Now the Bible doesn't specifically say here that Elimelech was wrong by leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab. But any Jew reading this would have known what Moab was and would have known that it was not right for God's people to go to Moab and to sojourn in Moab. Moab, let me give you a little background here. Moab was a nation that was started by an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. You can read that disturbing story in Genesis 19. This nation would later stand in Israel's way as they were heading to the promised land after the exodus And they're heading to the promised land. This nation and its king would stand in the way of Israel and not let them pass through the land. All Israel wanted to do was let us pass through on our way to the promised land. And they said no. Matter of fact, they hired a a prophet for hire named Balaam to come and curse them. And, and, And so this nation hated Israel. This nation stood in the way of God's plans, stood in the way of God's people. And you can read about that in Numbers 22 through 29. Matter of fact, when they're first plan, which was to curse the nation of Israel, didn't work. They came up with a second plan, which was to have the women of Moab seduce the men of Israel and let, have them fall into sexual sin. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 25. This is Satan's oldest trick in the book, the way he deals with men. Just to throw sexual sin out there, sexual temptation out there. And so they do that, and they cause the Israelites to stumble The Moabites were then judged harshly by God. And it's a really difficult passage to read, but God God says, wipe them out completely. Men, women, children, animals, everything. Wipe them out. That's how evil these people were. 
Matter of fact, they worshipped a god named Chemosh. And Chemosh required that people sacrifice their infants, at least one of their infants, as a burnt sacrifice to him. So these were idolaters, they were murderers, they killed children at the altar. That's the type of land this was in Moab. So God actually tells the people of Israel, wipe them out. Yet the Israelites actually didn't follow God's plan completely, and Moab still existed and would still be a thorn in Israel's side many years down the road. Matter of fact, the Moabites were one of the nations that God used to invade Israel to judge them in the period of the judges. So this nation, these Moabites, they were specifically cursed in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6. Um, it says in that passage that no Moabite is ever allowed into the assembly of God's people. That's how cursed the Moabites were. And upon the return of the exiles later in Scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah chastised the people of Israel for intermarrying with the Moabites. So Moab was not God's place to go when judgment came. Moab was not the place that God's people were to turn to when things weren't going good. It certainly wasn't what God wanted Elimelech to do. Instead of repenting of his own sins, repenting of his family's sins, repenting of his nation's sins, and turning to God and bearing the tough discipline of a God who loves his people, and perhaps changing and being a change agent to bring about community or national repentance, this guy runs. Now isn't that us men? When things aren't quite going right? Because we're Mr. Fix-its, aren't we? We come up with a solution. Alright, there's famine. Alright, let me figure out how to solve this problem. Instead of going to God and asking God to show us his solution for the problem, we say, I'm going to solve the problem here. So maybe we're not experiencing famine, but maybe it's something like a financial difficulty, a financial setback. And instead of going to God and saying, God, what do you want me to do with my money so that it can be glorifying to you? We say, I'm going to fix this problem. And usually we dig ourselves into a bigger hole. And that's kind of the way we are. That's, that's our nature. We see a solution. It makes sense to us. Doesn't necessarily what God wants, but it makes sense to us. And we lead our family. And that's the nature of men. Notice what happens when you begin to run from God and try to solve things in your own power. What starts off as only a short-term diversion from God's way of doing things often turns into a long-term detour. It says that they went to sojourn. That means to stay temporarily. But we read later on that they were there at least 10 years. Matter of fact, it says that they went into the country of Moab and stayed there. The, the, word, the verb stayed means they settled down. They put roots down. You don't go somewhere for 10 years and just sojourn. You're there to stay. Heather and I have lived in, in Georgia now for, for five years. We're not, we're not just passing through. We're, we're staying here. This is, this is where we live, and that's what happens. What, what he goes to do is just to get away for a little while. And then he finds himself stuck there. And that's what happens when you begin to deviate from God's way of doing things. It can often turn into a long-term detour that has long-term effect. And it says here that he died. He dies. Now, was he judged? Was he, did he die because of, of God's judgment on him? I, I don't know whether we can say for sure or not. I don't know how he died. It doesn't say. He could have, he could have gotten sick. He could have gotten run over by a camel. We don't know. He dies. He just dies. We're not sure why. But there's hints here that it may have been judgment that God was bringing upon him. First of all, the Jewish rabbinic literature has always viewed this as judgment. 
Elimelech is judged by God. He dies when he gets to Moab. And I think the author, again, is drawing on some irony here. What is it? He runs away from the problem. And what's the problem? Famine. What happens when you don't eat? You die. He runs away from the problem over here, and then he finds what he's running away from in this other place. He ends up running right into the arms of death instead of running away from it. Another clue here is verse 3. It says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. That phrase, she was left, that term, usually refers to what remains after judgment has been carried out. So, so there's these little subtle hints here that God may have judged Elimelech in his, own, in his dying. Another thing that happens, dads, when we lead our families to run away from the bitterness of life with some solution that we've concocted our way of solving things, our kids will follow in our footsteps. Dads, you are the leaders of your home. The reason this passage starts with Elimelech is because Elimelech was the leader of his family. It could have just ignored Elimelech and just said, you know, Naomi, she ended up in, in Moab. But it deals with Elimelech first. He was a leader of his home, and he led his family into Moab. You know, there's a word here for, for the church as well today. Because here we live in a culture where everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And we can either face that head on with the gospel message like we sang about in Christ alone. Or we can run to the world. Moab, the nation of Moab stood for everything God was against. Everything God was against. God was judging the people of Israel because they were like Moab. So as a church, the tendency is, well, boy, we live in this culture that's so relativistic, it's so hard to communicate with them. Let's become more like them. And that's not the solution for the church. There's many clever pastors out there that have figured out plenty of ways to try to be just like the world. Uh, we, could, we could sing Van Halen. Could you do Van Halen? Mark, you know, do jump or something. We can, we can incorporate some Van Halen. We can do, yeah, we could do that. But I don't believe that the solution for our problem, the darkness we live in today in this world, this nation, which continually gets darker, is to run to what the world has to offer and say, let's just become more like that and hopefully make a difference in the world. The way we make a difference in the world is standing up for the gospel, standing up for the truth. In a culture that says there is no truth. That was totally a parenthetical section of the sermon. All right? I wasn't planning on going down that road. But I think there's a word here for the church. Anyway, let's go back to Elimelech and his sons here. These boys, Mahon and Chilion. By the way, or Kilion, Chilion, however you pronounce it. To me they sound like Klingon names. But um, Mahon and Chilion here, their names actually mean sick and dying. How's that? Moms, I don't know if she just had really bad labor. What are we going to name them? Sick and dying. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think it probably just reflects what was going on in Bethlehem. They had these boys. There's no hope. What are we going to name this one? Sick and this one's dying. That's what they named them. So their names are, are Sick and Dying. And they married two Moabite women. Ruth and her name, her name means... Um, refreshment or, or friend. So you got, Mahon's the, the one who, who married, so you got Sick who married refreshment. And, and now Orpah's name, not Oprah, not Oprah, Orpah, okay? Orpah's name means pain in the neck, all right? So you got Death who married pain in the neck. Imagine those arguments. You're going to be the death of me. Well, you're just a pain in the neck. I mean, these are some weird names that are going on here. 
So you got Orpah and Ruth, Mahon and Chilion. They, they marry Moabite women. Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4 had specifically prohibited the God, people of God from intermarrying with pagan cultures. Now this wasn't an ethnic thing. It wasn't that God didn't love other ethnicities. He did. He does. The the book of Ruth stands here. So does the story of Rahab and plenty of other stories like Jonah to tell us that God does love all people from around the world. But he had called out a people, the nation of Israel, and he wanted them to stand and be holy and stand apart from the world. And so there are plenty of instances like Rahab where a pagan person embraced Yahweh and they became a part of Israel. And there's no problem with that. And so they intermarried with those people. What God didn't want was for men to begin to intermarry with other women from other nations who still worshipped pagan gods. That's what he didn't want. He didn't want to see that happen. And they married Orpah and Ruth. And there's no indication here that Orpah or Ruth, at, at any point here prior to this marriage, there's no indication here that they embraced Yahweh. They probably didn't. Matter of fact, Orpah's told to go back to her gods. So, These boys follow in their dad's footsteps. Instead of being patient, instead of saying, let's go back to Israel, instead of following God's Deuteronomy chapter 7 prescription for marriage, they're going to solve the problem right here. I'm of age. I want a woman. There's another clue here in the text to indicate that these marriages were not what God wanted. We're not blessed. We're not what God wanted immediately. But it's ultimately God's will is bigger It's a pretty amazing thing. This story is an example of how God's ultimate will can actually incorporate things that violate his will. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But here, there's a a bit of a clue here. It says in verse 4, these took Moabite wives. Mahon and Chilion took Moabite wives. The verb took here is not the normal verb used to take a wife. There's, that's used a lot of times in Scripture, that so-and-so took a wife. But in this specific instance, it's not the normal verb for someone taking a wife. It's another verb that's used when someone goes in and conquers a land and takes the women. It's also used to refer to illegitimate marriages and rape. That's what this verb is used for. It literally means to lift up. The image here is of, of a man going, like the old caveman, picking up a woman, putting him on his shoulder, and walking off. So it's used in the Hebrew to refer to illegitimate marriages. And so I think that God here is saying these were not legitimate marriages. These boys should have been back home under the leadership of their father, marrying with people who were part of the community of God. The New Testament teaches something similar when it tells us not to be unequally yoked. I encourage young men and women to marry another believer because that's what the Scripture says. And you bring a lot of challenges into your life when you marry outside of God's people. Uh, verse 4, like I said, they took these wives, and these boys died too. Sick and dying, they die. But regardless, you know, it seems like judgment again here is being implied by the author. But regardless, they were with Naomi, they were with Orpah for 10 years and didn't have any children. Another indication that perhaps there was some divine judgment going on in this passage. And they're left all alone. Elimelech had tried to run from the dark season of life that engulfed Israel and things that he tried to run from and solve, he actually ran into. He ran into more trouble than he was running away from. And now an even deeper darkness has engulfed Naomi. 
She's husbandless, which means her provision has vanished. Her protection has vanished. Her purpose has vanished. She has no sons, no hope for grandchildren. All hope seems to be gone. She would have certainly viewed herself as a cursed woman. So I want to now turn to Naomi. How did Naomi face these difficult and dark seasons? Well, Naomi was embittered by it. A tiny ray of hope peeks through the dark clouds of difficulty in verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return, that 50-mile journey, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she hears, she hears that God's visited his people and given them food. Literally, the word food there is bread. So there's bread once again in the house of bread. She's heard that this is going on. So there's some rumor floating around that God has lifted his curse against the people of Israel. So they set out, both Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. They go away, and then apparently Naomi has second thoughts about them coming and wants to put their interests first. And she says in verse 8, Go, return. This is a command. It's like tough love. Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. For the Lord, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She tells them to return to their mother's house. This is not the normal phrase. Normally, you would tell someone to go back to their father's house. But she says mother's house. And in the Old Testament, the only other two times that mother's house is used, it refers to a place of marriage and love. So her concern here is that they go marry again. Go find husbands. Go find rest in the arm of a husband. Go find the provision that I no longer have, the protection that I no longer have, the purpose that I no longer have. She wants them to go and find a new husband and find the rest that they need. Even in the midst of her pain, she wants the best for the girls. She insists on continuing. They insist on continuing with her in verse 10. And then she reiterates her thoughts and goes into more detail. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may, <clears throat> that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Now, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Now, why does the author go into this long dialogue here? Uh, he's setting us up for something that happens later in the book called Leverite Marriage. Um, this seems weird to us. I mean, here's, here's the daughter-in-law wanting to come, and she says, no, I can't have children anymore, and even if I could... You're going to wait 30 years, wait 20 years till they're, till they're older so you can marry them? And we're, I mean, for us, that's weird. Okay? You're thinking, no, just go back and find a good Jewish guy in Bethlehem. But, but, but for, for the custom in that time, there was a custom called Leverite marriage, which meant that the brother-in-law or the brother of the deceased or a near relative that was unmarried had to take the place of the brother and marry the widow so that his line could be continued. And that was the custom of the day. And so that's what she's talking about here. And it's important for her to set this up for us to understand this as we go into the next part of the book. And we won't go there now. But she says this, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then she says later on in verse 19 when they get to Bethlehem, it says, So the two of them went on, well, let me kind of fill in the story here. Orpah leaves, and you, you read that, and then Ruth stays with her. So when the two of them come to Bethlehem, 
verse 19, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred, meaning they were, they were gossiping, buzzing because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? You know, apparently the years hadn't been good to Naomi. Um, she says, call me, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Now, Naomi means pleasant or good. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. So basically she's saying, call me bitter, bitter old woman. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me sweetheart. Call me bitter old hag. Because that's how she feels. Call me bitter. And then she goes on, for the Almighty, here's her reason for her bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, on one hand, you've got to hand it to her for her honesty. She walks into town. I mean, you guys walk in here on Sunday morning, and someone comes up and says, How are you doing? And what do you say? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. Your house could have burned down yesterday, but you say, Oh, it's just wonderful. Because she comes in, she's just flat out honest. How are you doing, Naomi? Oh, I'm a bitter old hag. Shut up. God's dealt horribly with me. She's honest. Okay? And I think we could learn something from that. Okay, I don't want anybody coming in just being that bitter. But you know what? We need to be able to come in and just say, you know what? Things are not going good right now. And I need fellowship, prayer, support. I need you there with me. And so Naomi here, she comes into town and she blames God for everything that's happened to her. She has four accusations against God that he's dealt very bitterly with her. He's brought her back empty. He's testified against her, and he's brought calamity upon her. And then earlier we read in verse 13 that she was bitter because she felt that the hand of the Lord had gone out against her. That's the word used for a foe. If someone's punching you, he's your foe, he's your enemy. God's hand has punched me in the face is basically what she's saying. God has just punched me right upside of the face. She directly accuses God for her bitterness. Now, what are we to make of this? Is she right? Yes, she's right. And no, she's not right in her attitude. Let me put it this way. Naomi's theology is good, but her mentality is bad. Her theology is good, but her mentality is bad. Her theology is thoroughly biblical, for she knows that no calamity can come upon us apart from the permitting hand of God. A whole book of the Bible was written to teach us that. It's called Job. Read it. She knew that this couldn't happen apart from God's sovereign permission. And so her theology is good, but a strong view of God's sovereignty cannot be divorced from a belief in and a trust in God's goodness. You take strong sovereignty and take away God's goodness, you get bitterness. So her theology's right. She knows. She's not like process theologians who today say, well, God doesn't really know the future, and he's not really in control. He just kind of has it better figured out than we do. But he's still learning. He's evolving with the rest of us. That's called process theology. That's taking away God's sovereignty and putting a lot of emphasis on God's goodness. Because the process theologian will say, yeah, God's good. But they erase the sovereignty part of God. And then there's those who are just cold and fatalistic. And they say, yeah, oh well, you know, 
someone comes in with bad news, my house burnt down, they say, praise the Lord. God's got a, got a plan in it. And, and, and you forget to be there and to comfort people and help them go to the scriptures and say that God is good and he does have a plan behind it. But he's also told us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice because he's a good God. And he ultimately has good ends in mind. And, and it seems like Naomi here has forgotten that he's a, a good God. You remember what Lucy says in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Actually, he, she says, is he a tame lion? She's talking about Aslan. Is he a tame lion? He's not a tame lion. No, he's not a tame lion. And then one of the other characters says, but he's good. He's sovereign. He's not tame. We can't tame him with our timetables. We can't tame him with the way we want life to work. He is God. He does whatever he wants to do. But he is good. And for his people, Romans 8, 28, the Deemer prayed earlier. He works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He has good in mind for Naomi. He has good in mind for Ruth. He has good in mind for a guy by the name of Boaz who is single yet older. You wonder what his life's been like up to this point. How come I can't get married? We'll talk about Boaz later. But God's got good in mind for all these people because they're his people. For those who belong to him, he's working all things together for the good. You see Joseph, remember the story of Joseph? Demer's going to hit Joseph head on here in a couple of weeks. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph had good theology and a good mentality because he could have been bitter. He went through worse than Naomi went through. And when it comes down to the end, after years, 14 years of difficulty, people trying to kill him, people falsely accusing him, people forgetting about him, after 14 years of that, he says, you know what? What you meant for evil when he's talking to his brothers, God meant for good. For good. So Naomi has to come back to a proper mentality about God. I know it's getting late, but I like to try to do something to help kids embrace difficult concepts like this. So I'm going I'm to keep on going. Once Rewind kicks back in, I'll be a little bit more careful trying to get on, down on time. But I want to keep on going today. Um, now, I need some kid that's just really hungry this morning. And they're scared to, to raise their hands. But I saw Preston come on up here. All right. You hesitated. Come on up here. Now, I have three little baggies here. Now, I want you to stick your finger in here. Just lick your finger, stick it in, and, and taste that substance that's in there. All right? Just, is it good? Sort of. Is, is it sweet or is it kind of bitter? bitter? It's bitter. It's bitter. All right? And then I want you to do the same thing again with, with this one. Okay. That one's sweet. That one's sweet. Both of these are ingredients to make a cookie. See this cookie right here? Okay. One of them is, is baking powder, soda, something. I don't know. I don't cook. I can't remember which one Heather put in here. Sorry. It's baking something. It's the white powder you're supposed to put in your cookies. And then this is sugar. And both are a vital, important part of the ingredient of this good cookie. Miss Heather made these. Girls, are these cookies good? Yes. These, yeah, these cookies are good. Matter of fact, I can tell they want me to give it to them right now, but I'm not going to. I'm going to give it to Preston. You don't like them. 
You know why you don't like them, though? Hey, this is a good teaching moment. You know why you don't like them? Because she found out there's eggs in them. You ate a bunch of them until you found out there were eggs in them because she didn't like eggs. You see, this cookie has some good stuff that we really like, like sugar, some bitter stuff that, that we don't really like to put into our mouth, like the baking stuff, and, and, and then things we don't like, like, like eggs. But, but God is sovereign, and, and he has a good purpose behind it all. And his purposes are good. They taste, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. So you can go eat that, all right? So, and I'll just leave these here. That's who our God is. And if you just see the bitter and don't believe in the good, you're going to become a bitter person. No matter how good your theology is. I don't care how good your theology is. You've got to embrace God's goodness in order to be able to really live the way he wants you to in this world, especially during dark, difficult times. Notice a couple of things that bitterness does in your life. Naomi misses. Bitterness will cause you not to be able to see the good things that God's doing. There's two things that I've noticed in this passage that Naomi totally misses. First of all, in her bitterness, she told the girls, There's nobody, I can't have kids for you. There's nobody for you. Yet she gets back to Bethlehem, and in the next chapter, we realize there's at least two relatives there that could be redeemers for the girls, that can marry the girls. There's at least two people. There's a guy by the name of Boaz, a man's man. Now, that's a name, Boaz. How come you all name your boys Boaz? Boaz. There's Boaz there. But she forgets. She didn't even think about Boaz because in your bitterness, you don't even think about the good things that God's doing in your life or the good things that may be waiting for you. The other thing she misses, and this is the most important one, look what she says in verse 21. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back what? empty. She's standing there with all these Bethlehem women that are going, are you Naomi? And, and they're buzzing and they're gossiping. And she's sitting there surrounded by these ladies saying, I'm just bitter. I'm just bitter. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And standing right beside her is a woman by the name of Ruth who has shown tremendous sacrificial love to stick with her mother-in-law. She's not empty. She has Ruth. But she doesn't even see it. When we're bitter about life, we're bitter about God's hand on our life, we can't even see the good things standing right beside us, right there with us, which takes me to Ruth. I'll go through the last two characters quickly. Oh, bring me back to number four, three, three. Ruth was faithful despite it. How did she handle the dark season of life? She was faithful despite it. Ruth is a very quiet character in this first chapter. And when she does speak, she speaks words that are so beautiful that they actually have become the most famous words of this book. And they're often used in wedding ceremonies. And there's words that are used and repeated when we think about faithfulness, friendship, and love. Because after Orpah, the pain in the neck, leaves and heads back to her gods, which is important. I think the author intentionally points out that she heads back to her gods. This is what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Now, that's not just a generic, your God. 
Because, she goes on to say, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and the word she uses here for Lord, is the divine name Yahweh. May Yahweh, not just your, whoever you worship, let me just come with you, I'll, I'll go to church with you. Yahweh, your God, may the Lord, Yahweh, do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is an amazing devotion and sacrifice. This is faithfulness to the greatest degree. By making this decision, she is leaving her family. She is embracing widowhood for life. Because as far as she knows, there's no one to redeem her. She's facing widowhood for life. She is embracing a childlessness for life. She's embracing childlessness for life. She's heading into the unknown. She's heading into a potentially racially hostile environment. I'm telling you, the people of Israel did not like the people of Moab. This would be akin to a, a woman, a Jewish woman in the 1940s heading to Germany to live there in the middle of World War II. She's heading into a potentially racially insensitive and hostile environment. She's making a lifelong commitment to Naomi that actually outlasts Naomi's life because she says, I'll be buried where you're buried. Naomi's at least maybe, maybe 20, 30 years older than her. So Naomi's going to die first more than likely. So she's saying, I'm going to be buried where you're buried. That means after you're dead, I'm sticking with you. I'm staying there. I'm with your people. Your God is my God. I'm staying there. It's a lifelong commitment. And she's forsaking her gods, and she's embracing Yahweh. Which is remarkable when you consider what she knows about Yahweh from Naomi. All that Naomi said about God so far is that his hands, he punched me in the face and I'm bitter. That's what she knows about Yahweh. She goes, I want that God. Because she does know that he is a sovereign God. He's in control. He rules. And she wants this God. Her faith in Yahweh, in Naomi's God, allows her to see beyond her bitter setbacks, and her faithfulness allows her to endure the bitter setbacks. Her faith in God allows her to see beyond the setbacks, and her faithfulness allows her to endure the setbacks. She shows the virtues of a godly woman. 1 Peter 3, 6 talks about a godly woman being someone who fears nothing. That's Ruth. She's selfless, sacrificial. And we'll see more about Ruth as we go on in the story later on. We'll see more of her beautiful character emerge. Finally, okay, Elimelech runs from the dark seasons of life. Naomi gets embittered by the dark seasons of life. Ruth is faithful despite the dark seasons of life. And finally, and most importantly, God was working through it. God was working through the dark seasons of life. He has a purpose for this, which is really remarkable when you consider that if you take my interpretation of the first chapter of Ruth this morning, that is that a lot of this involves sin. That God is big enough, sovereign enough, that even he can incorporate the sin of a man who abandoned his people and went after the world into his plans. And the death of two boys and the widowhood of a woman and two young ladies, all of that, all that dark season is still within God's providential control. So it ends here with a wonderful, hope-filled verse, Ruth 1.22. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. 
who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. And it says, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So this is a beautifully hope-filled verse. The dark clouds of chapter 1 are parting, and the light's beginning to shine through. Harvest is here. There's a field that will need harvesting. There's a Redeemer who works that field. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a need that Naomi and Ruth will have, and Ruth will head into that field where the, where the barley is being harvested. And she will meet her Redeemer. Like a master chef's culinary creation of all the pieces coming together, like colors blending together in a great artist's canvas, like the notes both high and low, sharp and flat, all blending together in a great composer's work, God is working it all together for a glorious good. So let me just conclude this morning with asking you, you don't have to respond, but what season in life are you in right now? Is it dark? Maybe it's not dark. Maybe the, the light's shining in a bright way right now. But no matter what season you're passing through, don't run from it or try to come up with your own solutions. Don't be like Elimelech. Don't become embittered by it. Don't forget that, yes, he's sovereign, but he also has your good in mind. If you belong to Christ and he has your good in mind, don't miss what good he's doing in the midst of your storm. Do be faithful like Ruth. Have faith in God to carry you through and demonstrate faithfulness by living towards living with him and, and for him and, and, and your actions towards others in a way that brings him glory. And finally, trust God. He is working through it. He has redemptive purposes behind all of this. There is a redemption. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. For in what we might consider to be the darkest times of life, God is always at work. Because out of the house of bread, out of the house of bread, God brings the bread of life. Out of the house of bread will come one day because of all these circumstances, Ruth being widowed, all these circumstances, it all works together and she meets Boaz and out of Boaz and Ruth's marriage comes a lineage of David and out of David comes the bread of life. God is working it all together in this story, not just for Ruth's good, not just for Naomi's good, not for David's good, but for our good as well. This story happened for you and me. It did. Because God has glorious plans behind all that he does. So let me close this right now, and I want to give you an invitation this morning. Will you, like Ruth, forsake Moab, forsake the gods of Moab, forsake the world, and go after Yahweh, go after God, who has a Redeemer named Jesus, who has died on the cross to take your sin, to redeem you, to purchase you back for God? Will you forsake Moab? Forsake the world and embrace Yahweh. Embrace the bread of life. Because no matter how much or how little bread is in your home, if you've got the bread of life, you're wealthy and rich beyond compare. And you will be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for Ruth and Naomi. God, I know that Elimelech, he failed his family. And I don't want to be like Elimelech. But God, you used the failure of Elimelech and the failure of Mehan and Chilion and, and you worked even those sinful mistakes into your perfect plan. And God, I'm such a sinful failure of a dad so many times and failure of a husband so many times. So I, I just pray, God, that you, and I, I don't just hope, I know 
because I belong to you through Jesus Christ. God, I know you're working out all things, circumstances that are outside of my control and even my own sin. You're working it all out for good. But you don't want me to remain in Moab. You want me to come back to you. You want me to live for you. You want all of us to do that. So this morning, Father, I pray that we would take this time of response and that we would sincerely, sincerely ask you to show us any ways in our life that we are being like Elimelech and we are just trying to solve things on our own. And God, show us any areas of our life where we're, we're blind to what you're doing. We're blind to the good things you've put in our life because we're bitter. Or worse, God, if there's anyone here that thinks that you're just some sort of evolving God that, that's just trying to guess the future like the rest of us, oh God, I pray that you would invade that heart this morning. And God, I pray that we would be like Ruth, faithful to our friends, faithful to our family, faithful to our spouses, faithful to our church, but most of all, faithful to you. So Lord, we know you're working all things together for the good of those who love you, called according to your purpose. So now we lift up our song, our voices in song as we respond. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please.